Welcome to Beyond the Lamppost, a podcast dedicated to engaging the world of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm Shannon. And I'm Stephen. Here we reflect on our experience as siblings growing up in Narnia and journey deeper into its world with the eyes of young adults. Today, we're discussing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, chapters 1 through 4. So to start off with a little synopsis of the plot so far. Many of you may be familiar with this story. At the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we meet the four Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. They're sent away from their home in London during World War II because of the danger of the German air raids. They live in the house of an old professor and decide to start exploring there. During their exploring, Lucy finds her way into a wardrobe that turns out to lead her into the land of Narnia. She meets a fawn named Mr. Tumnus and is hospitably entertained until she discovers that he had meant to hand her over to a mysterious figure called the White Witch. The repentant Mr. Tumnus returns her back home where she comes back into the real world, or at least our real world as we know it. Later on, while playing hide-and-seek, Edmund discovers Lucy in the wardrobe but he actually stumbles into Narnia first. He meets the White Witch, who offers him Turkish delight, a lovely, sweet treat, if he will return with the rest of his siblings. So there we go. Good synopsis. Thanks. You did not prepare for that synopsis, and it sounded very good. Wow, thank you, Shannon. You're welcome, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so what do we think of these first four... Chapters. Well, these are really important chapters because they set up basically like the whole Chronicles of Narnia. This is our first introduction into Narnia. We meet the main characters that go throughout all of the Chronicles of Narnia. Personally, at least stuff that I was struck by, I found the first... I, I've, I've been finding everything in this book so far really familiar. Yeah. Um, almost to the point where I, I felt like I had the book memorized. I remembered so many lines from movies or from the audio drama version that Focus on the Family made. I even found, like, I was reading some of the lines with the intonation that I remembered yes, from either the movies or the were. audio drama. Because we were reading this together, and then we would look up at each other and quote the lines word for word. So clearly this was a big big part of our childhood if it was so memorable. Yes. Is there anything that you remember that relates to these first few chapters in particular? So I think one of the big things is that we're introduced to the poor four Pevensey children. And I always felt like I really identified with Lucy very strongly. Like Lucy and I were the same person. Although for a while I was Mm. kind of, I wanted to be Susan, you know? That's what I always remember. Well, that was for a while. Susan was like older and... Older means cooler. Maybe she was like, I imagined her as very pretty or something, but I I gave up Susan when I found out that in the last battle, she's not a Narnian person anymore. Spoiler alert. It's a little bit ambiguous what exactly happens there. I do have a lot of... she kind of went a different way. Yeah. I guess we'll, have, we'll certainly have the chance to talk about that more. Yeah. I always felt like I was I was Lucy, and when I dress up, I had this very specific red hat that I wore, 
You Why know? that red hat? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, it just Lucy like. It was Lucy like. It might have been similar to a hat that the actress in the BBC Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe wore, or something like that. That reminded me of that. Yeah, I I wore that <laughs> hat to my Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe birthday party because mm. I was Lucy and you were King Peter, right? I was. That was a fun birthday party. That was a very fun birthday. I had my party. wooden sword. We uh, we dressed up. Mm-hmm. Good times. Wasn't there? Didn't you also have a pin the tail on Aslan? <laughs> pin the tail on Aslan. <laughs> oh my gosh! I know. I felt like I had a big crush on Peter too. He was like, you know, he felt so old to me at the time. You had a crush on Peter, as in Peter in the book, or Peter in one of the movie versions? Probably the Peter in the BBC adaptation. I see. Which I made didn't me know have this. a crush on him in the book, too. Oh, yeah. But, like, he was what in the movie adaptation? Like, maybe 10, 11, 12? I don't even know. He was 12 or 13, but in my mind, he, like, seemed like a grown-up because well, I was very young. I, I remember recently going back and looking at pictures online from the original BBC version. Yeah. This was the this was made in what the nineties? Eighties. Eighties? Like eighty six or something. Eighties or nineties. And he looked so much younger than I remembered. Oh yeah, being. for sure. <laughs> now they look like babies when I watch it. But I had a big crush on him. He was always like the leader. He always took charge. He was brave and courageous. Which we we don't see a lot of in these chapters yet. We're, we don't dive into his character too much, but we will later. Although I have to say, I did notice a lot of those qualities that you were mentioning, even in these first few chapters. Oh, really? Where? Well, in in the beginning, when when they first come to the professor's house, he says, "All right, we've landed on our feet, and that's no mistake." He's optimistic. He's he wants to set the tone for what his younger brothers and sisters are feeling. He wants them to to feel like this is going to be a good experience, and he gives them the idea: okay, we can go exploring outside. The next day, there are all these animals that we could see on the grounds of this fine country house. Yeah, he's trying to take charge and trying to put light on kind of a stressful situation because the Pevensies are, I mean, the book doesn't really emphasize or focus on the war or um, they just say they were sent to the country because of the air raids. But like, this has got to be a stressful situation. They're away from their parents. Their country's at war, anyone could die. So that that might be kind of important context for where they're at at the beginning. Very much so. And, and one of the things that I remembered, well, one of the things that I noticed in the book this time around that I didn't notice before was the line where it, where it described Edmund that he was, he was tired and he, but he was, he was tired and he was pretending not to be tired. Yep. And that put him in a bad temper. Mm-hmm. That makes sense given everything that they would be going through at that time, all the changes in their lives. And it kind of makes you empathize with him a little bit more. Yes. And I I actually was like super struck by that this time reading it through how much I empathize with the character of Edmund because mm. at the time of reading it, I kind of just viewed Edmund as the bad person you shouldn't when a reading act like it originally him. when you when were younger when i was very younger and mm-hmm. like watching the 
movies and hearing the musical, Edmund was always kind of the bad guy up until a very certain point Mm. in the story. But this time, I feel like I can relate to, like, when life gets hard, it's really hard to have a good attitude about things. True. And he must be hurting a lot and doesn't really know how to deal with it. That's true. That's a good observation. I just want to ask the question, what did you notice this time around or what interested you this time around that maybe you didn't find before? I was struck by how even though I felt like I almost had the book memorized, I was amazed by how much I found that I hadn't noticed before. Like what? Well, one thing that I didn't remember from my previous readings was on the very first page, he describes how the Pevensey children come to the house of the old professor. He has a housekeeper named Mrs. McCready and four servants. He mentions their names. Yeah. Ivy, Margaret, Betty, and I think there was one other. But then he says, but that's not important. These characters won't matter. Well, he says they don't come into the story very much, but I think the fact that he mentions their names... It humanizes them. Yeah. It it says that as people, they are important, even if they're not part of this story. Interesting. That probably says something about C.S. Lewis, too. I think it does. When reading his uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, there were certain, you, you can tell his attitude toward certain servants, even certain maids in his own life while he was growing up. They had a positive influence on him. And he came to really respect them as people, even if they didn't have the same social rank or economic status as yeah. the other people whom he was meant to associate with. One, one of the interesting details that I noticed, just in, there was a general overall feel of warmth and cold that were constantly being contrasted with one another. Oh, tell me about that. So I noticed that obviously when you get into the land of Narnia, it's winter. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of uh, white. It's There's snow everywhere. Um, Lucy meets the fawn, Mr. Tumnus. They go to his house, and there's a lot of emphasis on there's a fire here. It's a, mm. it's a, it's a clean, dry... You, you, there's sort of a coziness to it. Also significant about that interplay between cold and warm is... The fact that it is the witch who brings this coldness mm. to to the place. She's, she drives out the warmth. And any time where there is coldness or, or, or even to a certain degree wetness that comes, it's usually because of the witch in some way. When Mr. Tumnus is realizing that he, he shouldn't be kidnapping Lucy, he's crying, he sobs into the handkerchief, and the, the, the words of the book are surprisingly uh, graphic and vivid, that he's, he's wringing out the handkerchief until there's a little wet patch yeah. that Lucy is standing <laughs> in. Uh, there's, there's this wetness here that's dampening the warmth and the coziness of the relationship that they had, and it's there because of the witch. Yeah. For the witch, she is completely pale, just as the snow and the world around her is white. And her demeanor and her manner is also very cold Mm. and commanding. Until she wants something from Edmund. And then she switches. She, She allows him to come up and have a hot drink. She puts her warm mantle over him. She's trying to use those things in order to in order to manipulate him. 
Um, but really what she wants to bring to the world is just a coldness. Mr. Tumnus's cave and his relationship with Lucy are sort of a pocket of light and warmth in the midst of that. Yeah. And maybe also the cave could also be representing what Narnia really is at heart, but it's hidden because of all the snow. There's a lot of similar warm feelings that come out even when Mr. Tumnus is telling the stories of the older Narnia. And you know what? I'm going to read it because I think it's important to get a picture of just what Narnia is because Mm -hmm. we're setting up in this episode for the rest of the Chronicles of Narnia what Narnia looks like. So let's see. And when Lucy was tired of eating, the fawn began to talk. He had wonderful tales to tell of life in the forest. He told about the midnight dances and how the nymphs who lived in the wells and the dryads who lived in the trees came out to dance with the fawns. About long hunting parties after the milk-white stag who could give you wishes if you caught him. About feasting and treasure-seeking with the wild red dwarfs in deep mines and caverns far beneath the forest floor and then about summer when the woods were green and old Selenius and his fat donkey would come to visit them and sometimes Bacchus himself and then the streams would run with wine instead of water and the whole forest would give itself up for jollification for weeks on end. I love that word jollification. 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 (laughs) In regards that like cold versus warm i want to focus a little bit on the queen the white witch and the temptation of edmund that's great i i want to focus on that too what do you think well that's a really significant part in the book at this point you can tell that maybe c.s lewis is trying what's the word to make this story is it an allegory or you i mean maybe you could say it's an allegory it's at the very least, it's it has some you know deeper meaning. It's embodying something beyond it. It's talking about spiritual and moral truths of of greater life. But you could say it's an allegory, perhaps. What yeah. what do you have in mind? Well, it's I when I was younger, I I was always told that the White Witch was tempting Edmund, like Satan tempts us towards evil things by dressing it up to look inviting or desirous. Mm, that's right. As in in C.S. Lewis's own worldview and as a as a Christian and in, in many ways a fairly traditional one, he really does believe that there are dark spiritual forces mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. It's interesting that you mention that too, dressing things up yes. in order to to trick you. That's exactly what the witch does with Edmund. It's extremely manipulative. Exactly. You, you can tell that she has this, um, this cold, cruel demeanor toward him. She doesn't care anything about him as a person until suddenly there's this incredibly phony and puzzling and re- kind of confusing shift when she realizes that, um, that he's someone that she might be able to use or take advantage of. She becomes kind, you know, she gives him Turkish delight and something something hot to drink. It's very, and you can sense the falseness of it very clearly. Another comment on, on the White Witch, just to wrap up that, that section. I really liked what you said about dressing up something in order to make it look appealing, which is yeah. what the witch does. 
What I saw here in this chapter reminded me of something from the Screwtape Letters, an imaginary, imaginative work by C.S. Lewis, which talks about the letters of a senior demon, a, a, a tempter, writing to his, to his under-devil, uh, whose name is Wormwood. One of the things that he says is he complains about the tiresome business of using pleasures as temptations. Hmm. It would be so much better if he didn't have to do that, but for the sake of, of manipulation and for the sake of bringing destruction upon these human beings whom they're trying to tempt, they'll go with it. Something that you notice throughout the writings of C.S. Lewis is that evil and good are so separated from one another. Pleasure and happiness, joy and goodness are associated even with what we would call moral good. They're all part of the same thing. Evil is not able to produce anything good of its own. It is only aimed at, at destruction and tearing down and tearing apart. And so it's very, very much not something that Screwtape wants to do. It's not something that the witch wants to do to actually provide anything pleasant to Edmund or to anyone who's being tempted. Hmm. Their only interest is taking advantage of them. The witch, in a way, the witch has to borrow from the world of warmth. Oh, interesting. She has, she's, her realm is a realm of cold and knows nothing of warmth. The only thing that she can do is borrow from the world of warmth in order to snuff out Edmund's warmth yep. forever. Yep. It's bait on a hook. Yeah. And another thing I noticed this time that I didn't know before, that Edmund had little warning signs pop up in his head. Did you notice that when you were reading it? I didn't. There what what are you thinking times. of? I have a couple quotes here. Um, he said, when he had first got into the sledge, he was afraid that she might drive away with him to some unknown place from mm. which he would not be able to get back. But he had forgotten that fear now, now that he was eating Turkish delight. And then another place it said, Edmund was already feeling uncomfortable from having eaten too many sweets. And when he heard that the lady he had made friends with was a dangerous witch, which Lucy told him, he felt even more uncomfortable but he still wanted to taste that Turkish delight again more than anything he wanted anything else. It really captures the allure of that temptation for him, of the Turkish delight. Isn't that even sometimes a familiar experience for oh, us too? Oh, absolutely, yeah. The, the allure of, of pride or popularity that may come at a cost. The allure of some other, the, some other kind of pleasure that's artificial and... And, and superficial, and that will ultimately be destructive. And kind of refusing to see the warning signs because you're just so mesmerized by yeah. pleasure and desire and that shiny thing. One thing I always noticed, and I think when I was younger, this is one of the things, messages that really drove home for me, was to never close the door on yourself when you're in a wardrobe. That was so funny. I, I actually have to say that I was really amused by the number of times that popped up in these four chapters. Okay, I have to read some of the quotes because he mentions it quite a few times. When Lucy's going into the wardrobe, she had, of course, left the door open for she knew that it is a very silly thing to shut oneself into a wardrobe. And then, again, he says... 
She immediately stepped into the wardrobe and got in among the coats and rubbed her face against them, leaving the door open, because of course she knew that is a very foolish thing to shut oneself into a wardrobe. Very foolish. And then again, he says, she did not shut it properly because she knew that it is very silly to shut oneself into a wardrobe, even if it is not a magic one. I also love how you're marking this with tabs that say important <laughs> in capital letters. In the book. Yes. This is what stuck out to me as a child. It was a very cautionary tale um, because Edmund goes into the wardrobe and it says he jumped in and shut the door, forgetting that a very foolish thing this is to do. So I feel like maybe C.S. Lewis has had a bad experience with being locked in a wardrobe. That is possible. <laughs> he certainly doesn't want children to, to read this book and think that they can go shut themselves up in wardrobes. Although I have to say, you wonder why there are no warnings against running off with strangers. That is a very good point. Yes, although I guess all rules kind of go out the window when you enter a magical land. Another way I guess you could look at it is that the story itself sort of gives that warning. That's true. Things don't go well exactly. when you run off with strangers. Exactly. They might be kidnappers or witches. You might get candy, but doesn't turn out in a good way. Very true. We talked about being able to empathize with Edmund's character. Yeah. I found it interesting to get inside, well, I don't know about get inside his mind a little bit, but understand what his posture is, what, what makes him tick. Mm. I noticed that he has, he's, he's sulky. He's envious. He's sort of closed in on himself. He cares about his own mm -hmm. Turkish delight. He doesn't care about his siblings. And he projects his own attitudes onto Lucy. Interesting. When he first steps into Narnia, he assumes, oh, she must be off sulking somewhere. But we know that that isn't true because as soon as she sees him, she says, oh, Edmund, I'm so glad you're here. Isn't it wonderful? She's actually yeah. glad to have him on in on the experience. Yeah. Edmund wants to shut others out and push them down. But why? That's a good question. Because they're all going through a difficult time, all of the children, an equally diff difficult time. So what's different about Edmund? And I guess we'll never really know. In the other writings of C.S. Lewis, including the Screwtape Letters, which we mentioned earlier, I think we find that there's this dichotomy, there's this split between a life that's governed by charity and by love for others and a life that's mm -hmm. governed by selfishness and pushing others away. Yeah. There are a lot of things that follow from each of those postures, but in Edmund, we really see that, that dark, that selfish posture at work. Yeah. It's bent on pleasure to the point of being self-destructive. Mm. It desires to push others out and push others down. Yeah. To the point of isolating himself. Yeah. Even in a way, and it ultimately ends up being self-destructive. We see the opposite in Lucy, who's excited that Edmund is there and is eager to share the experience with him because she doesn't want it to be all for her and not for him. For Lucy, that love is something to be shared, and the excitement of Narnia is something that she wants to welcome him into. Stephen, what are top quotes that stuck out to you? Top quotes. Dun, dun, dun. What are my top quotes? Let me see. Some of these things we already talked about a little bit. 
I have to say one that we didn't talk about that I just found terribly amusing was on pages three and four. When they first see the professor, the book says, quote, he was so odd looking that Lucy, who was the youngest, was a little afraid of him. And Edmund, who was the next youngest, wanted to laugh and had to keep on pretending that he was blowing <laughs> his nose to hide it. That's hilarious. Yeah. I wonder, because C.S. Lewis actually um, hosted children during World War II in the That's country. That's true. Do you think he is the professor in this story? Is that how he views himself? I wonder. <laughs> Although Lewis didn't have a beard and the professor did. That's true. But maybe in other ways. Maybe, maybe. The, maybe, the, maybe they thought he was funny looking. Or yeah. he thought they thought Or he, he thought was. he was funny looking. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good one. That stuck out to me, too. I don't know if that's my top quote, though. That's a good one, though. Do you have a top quote? One of mine is, And so Lucy found herself walking through the wood, arm in arm, with this strange creature, as if they had known one another all their lives. And that's describing Lucy and Mr. Tumnus walking to his home. That stuck out to me because it describes their relationship really well. And as a hashtag Team Lucy person, <laughs> I have a very soft spot in my heart for Mr. Tumnus. As I mentioned before, my cat is named Mr. Tumnus. So I really like that description of that they had known each other all their lives, walking through the wood arm in arm. Very cozy image. It is a very cozy image. Which is what image. we get with their relationship. Yes. Do you have another one? You know, I think I know what might be my top quote, and it's a little bit of a longer one. It encapsulates our conversation that we were having about the witch, Edmund, and temptation. Mm-hmm. On page 37, the book says, quote, At last, the Turkish delight was all finished, and Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that she would ask him whether he wanted some more. Probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking, for she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it till they killed themselves. But she did not offer him more. Instead, she said to him, End quote. And it goes on to talk about how she wants him to come to her house with his, with his brothers and sisters. This quote really encapsulates the self-destructive nature of the pleasure that the witch is offering him. Mm-hmm. And I think the self-destructive nature of the deal that evil offers to each of us. Yes. It, it really encapsulates that well. It's manipulative. And it, and it brings about destruction. That was actually one of my top quotes, too, because I think it's one of the most important quotes and something that C.S. Lewis is really trying to um, communicate. I especially like the part, go on eating until they killed themselves, which is yes. very dramatic imagery. Another one of my favorite quotes is when Mr. Thomas and Lucy are in his house and he's trying to lure her to sleep, but... Um, as she's listening to the music, it says, And the tune he played made Lucy want to cry and laugh and dance and go to sleep all at the same time. Hmm. Every time we've read the book and or listened to the Focus on the Family dramatical version of it, 
that always stuck out to me so much in the beginning of this story. I think it describes the nature of Narnia and um, what everyone is missing about the spring and summertime in Narnia. There's a longing. There's a longing, yes. Laugh and dance and cry and go to sleep all at the same time. A longing for some kind of joy and contentment, yes. So, Stephen, I did a little research. Did you know? Do you remember how last time we read the dedication of this book? Uh, Dedication to Lucy Barfield. To Lucy Barfield, who is C.S. Lewis's goddaughter. I did a little research on who she was. All right, what do we have? All right. Lucy Barfield was born in 1935, daughter of Owen Barfield, a philosopher and author and member of the Inklings. Do you Ah. want to describe what the Inklings were, Stephen? The Inklings were a group of, I suppose you could say, literary gentlemen, scholars, writers uh, that would meet at a local pub near Oxford. Mm -hmm. Uh, C.S. Lewis was part of that group. J.R.R. Tolkien the author of The Lord of the Rings was also part of that group, yep. along with Dorothy Sayers and a few others. Didn't like C.S. Lewis tease J.R.R. Tolkien about his Hobbit stories or something like that? I don't know the I don't know the full story there. I know that I know that they read each other's work. I know Tolkien did not like Lewis's work at oh, all. Okay, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Lucy Barfield was a vivacious child, which sounds like someone else in this story, Lucy Pevensey, maybe. Okay. Um, C.S. Lewis did indeed name Lucy Pevensey after Lucy Barfield. She was a vivacious child. She was a ballet dancer and a music teacher. Hmm. In 1949, C.S. Lewis sent Lucy this manuscript of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and enclosed was a little note that eventually became the dedication of the book. Oh, okay. Later on, C.S. Lewis also dedicated The Voyage of the Dawn Treader to her brother, Jeffrey. There are other dedications of the books? Apparently. I know nothing about these. I want to read them now. I guess we'll have to get reading them, Stephen. I guess we will. Okay, but this is interesting. Now, Lucy developed multiple sclerosis in 1963, Mm. the year C.S. Lewis died. She was eventually hospitalized for her symptoms in 1990, and in the hospital, Jeffrey would come and read to her the Chronicles of Narnia over and over again. Wow. Which is very interesting because in the dedication, um, C.S. Lewis refers to... What, what is it he says? I, I think he says, now that I'm writing this, you're probably too old for fairy tales. But eventually you'll become older and you'll be ready to read them again. Yeah, and she certainly did. She died in 2003 at the age of 67. Wow. Yeah. It's a, a young age to die. There's a simplicity and a depth to the Chronicles of Narnia that was probably just what she needed, I would imagine. I think you're right. All right, I think we've covered all that we need to cover. I think we have. So join us next time for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, chapters 5 through 9. Read along if you want. See you then. theme song is by Jacob Parada. Check out more of his music at jacobparada.com.